Hello, and welcome to The Interview, a podcast by Mediaite. I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Mediaite, and each week I'm interviewing a top figure in media and politics. This week I'm joined by Jennifer Griffin, the national security correspondent for Fox News. Last week, Griffin matched reporting from The Atlantic that Trump has repeatedly disparaged veterans. In retaliation to her reporting, President Trump called for Griffin, a deeply sourced reporter with decades of experience, to be fired. Griffin called me from the Pentagon on Wednesday afternoon. We discussed her reporting on Trump, working at Fox News, revelations from Bob Woodward's new book, and what keeps the U.S. government up at night. Hi, Jennifer. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Aiden. Thanks. So I wanted to start off with some breaking news. Uh, the first reports on Bob Woodward's upcoming book about President Trump titled Rage were just published. They have some pretty astonishing revelations about the president. And I don't expect you to have any fresh reporting on this, but you're one of the most plugged in reporters at the Pentagon. And Woodward reports in his book that James Mattis, the former defense secretary, called Trump dangerous and unfit. Uh, he also reported that Mattis said, uh, and this is a quote, when I was basically directed to do something that I thought went beyond stupid to felony stupid, strategically jeopardizing our place in the world and everything else, that's when I quit. You covered Mattis extensively when he was part of the administration. Does that reporting align with what you know about the general and why he left? Well, if you go back to that time frame, the reason that uh, Defense Secretary Mattis left was that the president had said he was going to pull troops suddenly out of Syria and basically leave the Kurdish troops on their own. And to Jim Mattis, that was a bridge too far in the sense that uh, that leaving any sort of ally on the battlefield, people who had fought loyally against ISIS, uh, that was a breach. That was as though you were leaving a Marine on the battlefield. That was the final straw. But from reporting that I've done and from conversations I've had with uh, both with people very close to Jim Mattis who served with Jim Mattis, I can say that the breaking point really came uh, and the realization came about midway through 2017 uh, that it was going to be a very different administration to work with and that some of the things that I think what became very obvious after that 2017 tank meeting that became, that was, uh, that was, um, that we've confirmed many of the details of that was in uh, Carol Linnig's book, uh, The Very Stable De Genius, in which President Trump was brought in by Mattis and others to, and they went around the world to try and give him really an education of the dangers around the world and the U.S. positions and forced posture around the world. And it really descended into chaos pretty quickly with the president calling the uh, calling the generals in the room, uh, dopes and babies, called them losers. Um, I did confirm this week that, that he did say that. And Steve Mnuchin was in that, uh, that tank meeting at the time. And so it was a little surprising to me when I heard Steve Mnuchin uh, stand up and say he'd never heard the president disparage troops or generals before because he was in that meeting where that happened. And after that 2017 meeting, it really became a very tense relationship with the White House. There were times where uh, Secretary Mattis really, and General Joe Dunford, really tried to spend as little time directly over at the White House with the president as possible, because frankly, they did not want to be given orders that they did not want to have to implement that they viewed as either in breach of the Constitution or 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 inadvisable. General, 
John Kelly, who was chief of staff at the time, did ran a lot of interference for them. They were all friends, all former Marines. And so these stories are legion and have been confirmed by multiple reporters and my own reporting. Certainly, uh, many of the conversations I've had about that period are off the record. And so I have not uh, reported directly of them, but certainly the description in Woodward's book that you just read to me, um, it sadly does ring true based on um, people I've spoken to and my witnessing of that period here at the Pentagon. Mattis criticizing President Trump doesn't seem particularly surprising at this point because, you know, just in June, uh, he was condemning Trump as a threat to the Constitution in that, uh, in those comments, that statement that was given to the Atlantic. But it's still shocking to hear sort of top former administration officials refer to the president that they worked so closely with as a threat. Is that something that you've seen in, in any previous administration or does it, does it seem unique to the Trump administration? I've never heard, I've been here for 13 years covering the Pentagon and I've never heard any senior uh, leaders or, uh, or Pentagon staff speak about a sitting president in that way. Uh, that is extremely unusual. And you know the reverence that the military has for the commander in chief and the real attempt over the years. And it's been eroded terribly in recent years. And uh, frankly, it's been eroded since 9 11 uh, that the military has always tried to stay apolitical, stay out of politics, not that they salute smartly and they do not reveal their political leanings. That has eroded. And when you start seeing uh, troops wearing MAGA hats and the president uh, using them as props in a, as a backdrop to speeches, other presidents did so. President Bush did so. President Obama did so. But it really, it has been a, a constant battle here at the Pentagon uh, with various uh, members of the Joint Chiefs trying to keep the troops and the generals apolitical. There's been a big debate among retired generals about whether it was a good idea for uh, Jim Mattis and Admiral Mullen and others to come forward and speak out against uh, President Trump and about what they were seeing. You've heard, but you've seen Admiral McRaven and uh, uh, and uh, Stan McChrystal come out. There is a lot of debate within military circles about whether that does more damage in the long term to the institution. But again, I think what we're, what we're seeing and what we've heard from Jim Mattis himself now and others is that this is a very unusual president. They've never quite seen anything like this and that they felt a point there were various inflection points where they felt the need to, to speak up. And that's why you're seeing this unprecedented number, number of uh, general officers coming forward, retired, many of them. But um, I, I can tell you, th this, is, this has been a difficult time at, to cover the Pentagon. And as you may have noticed, we have not heard from, uh, from the senior leadership, Mark Esper and General Mark Milley in the Pentagon briefing room really since June 3rd. That's almost three months. That's unprecedented. I started this uh, beat and Robert Gates and Admiral Mullen would come out, you know, usually once every two weeks and, and brief the press in the, and take our questions in the briefing room. For the last four years, the senior leaders here have not wanted to take questions 
publicly from the press in uh, press conferences because they knew that they would be asked about things that they could not necessarily defend uh, that the president was doing, and they didn't want the press to put them on a collision course with the president, so they preferred to go uh, under the radar. But in, in the process, the, the media really covering the Pentagon has been hurt, and the American public has been hurt because we don't have as many on-the-record uh, briefings or opportunities with these senior leaders. To move on to the, the coronavirus a little bit, uh, one of the, uh, the revelations from uh, Woodward's reporting, he just released uh, an audio clip of an interview that he had with uh, President Trump, where uh, back in February, Trump acknowledged the dangers of COVID-19. He said it was worse than the flu, uh, which sort of contradicts with some of his public comments at the time, uh, downplaying it. He also said that he was sort of intentionally downplaying it to try and stave off a panic in the country. Do you have any insights into the timeline of what the administration was doing in those early months of the pandemic? Well, I went back to my reporting from March 23rd, and there was we had an on-the-record phone briefing with General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. And I remember asking at the time, when did the U.S. military know that the coronavirus could pose a pandemic-like threat to the continental U.S.? And General Milley told us at the time um, that the military became concerned in mid-January and published what's known as an exord, an execute order, on February 1st based on the U.S. military's global pandemic operation plan. That's a, a plan that they had had that was on the shelf, how to deal with a pandemic. And the Pentagon, we were told uh, by, by General Milley and others, uh, the Pentagon really could not execute that order without being ordered to do so by the defense secretary or the president. Uh, but the military went ahead on February 1st, published the exord as a way of leaning in and anticipating being asked to help civilian authorities like FEMA and others. So the U.S. military began making anticipatory uh, measures. They certainly briefed the White House about what they were hearing in terms of the intelligence suggesting that the pandemic was uh, very serious and could affect uh, the continental U.S. It was a, seen as a national security threat in that mid-January timeframe. Uh, but February 1st, that was a full month. I remember that on March 9th was the first day we had a briefing that was socially distanced here at the uh, briefing room. And I took a picture because we were sitting, all the reporters were sit sitting six feet apart and I sent it out to our network. And I remember people responding, anchors responding saying, is this a joke or is this, and I said, <laughs> this, is, this is deadly serious. And remember at the, the future, White House yeah. at the time, at the White House at the time, they were downplaying uh, the the need for social distancing and sitting six feet apart and the press was jammed together in those early briefings. So it, it was from February 1st to March 9th, uh, March 9th was when things started to change here at the Pentagon. But again, the, the White House had been briefed. And so that Woodward's, uh, what Woodward says in the book and what the president himself says in those audio tapes jibes with what we were hearing from Pentagon leaders that they knew this was a very serious threat, that it was aerosolized, could be spread through the air in mid-January. And are there frustrations at the Pentagon about the way Trump treated this, either through his rhetoric or his actions as president? Do you mean at the top? Uh, at, at top levels, uh, yeah. At top levels. Um, I have not heard that, but again, the active duty military does not uh, easily uh, come out and criticize a sitting president. So, so again, 
my job is to get facts and to create timelines and, uh, and to bring people on the record. And that's what I did in that phone call. It was my question to Mark Milley, uh, where I asked, mm -hmm. when was the Pentagon aware that this was a possible pandemic and what did you do about it? Because again, there was that gap between January and March 9th. And I was trying to figure out what, what had been said to the White House and others and why more hadn't been done. Let's talk a little bit about the Atlantic report on Trump's comments about uh, Americans killed at war. So Jeffrey Goldberg, the editor of the Atlantic, reported last week that Trump has repeatedly disparaged American service members as, uh, quote, suckers and losers. Now, Trump and the White House aggressively denied that reporting. It was based on multiple sources who were granted anonymity by the Atlantic. You chased down the story for Fox News and were able to confirm some of it. I'm interested to know what you were able to confirm and what remains in dispute. Could you outline for us what you reported? Well, what I reported at the time, and it was based on two senior former Trump administration officials who I spoke to, who verified a lot of the key details in the, in the Atlantic report. The one key detail that I did not confirm with those sources was that the president said directly about those buried in Ein Marne, the U.S. service members there, that he called them losers uh, or suckers. But what my sources told me, and these are very good sources, and I stand by my reporting, uh, these sources said things that were, uh, they walked me through uh, how the president did not want to go to the Ein Marne Cemetery uh, while going to France to mark the 100th anniversary of World War I. He said to them, what happened was, what happened was that there was a, a light rain that day, there was some cloud cover, and the helicopter that was supposed to take him to Ein Marne, uh, it, would, it could not fly. And so he was told he would have to drive. And the drive, it's about some people say it's 40 miles, some say it's 60 miles, but it was about an hour and 10 minute drive outside of Paris. And so they were prepared for a motorcade. The French police were prepared for a mo motorcade. Uh, Fox News was the pool uh, camera for that, uh, that cemetery visit. And so um, I spoke to people who drove out to the cemetery and there were pol French police all along the way. It was mostly a highway out there. And a little bit of country road at the end, but mostly highways, not difficult for a presidential motorcade to make their way its way down those um, roads. Uh, the leaders of other uh, European countries did go to outside of Paris to and drove to the cemeteries that day. And, uh, and I was told that the president was angry at Macron that morning. He, there was some reporting in the press that made him angry and that he did not want to go to the cemetery. He said, I'm already going to a cemetery the next day. Why do I have to go to two cemeteries? And then uh, this source tells me that the president had repeatedly described those uh, who had served in the Vietnam War, not World War I, but the Vietnam War had repeatedly called them suckers for not having been able to get out of that war. Remember, he had a deferment for alleged bone spurs. He mm -hmm. uh, also, I, my reporting 
at the time all of the reporting in the Atlantic about his uh, feelings about John McCain, and he said much of this on the record. I remember there was a standoff between the White House and the Pentagon over whether to lower the flag for John McCain. The president did not want the flags lowered, and there was a battle royale over it, and there was a standoff, and I knew that that was true because I covered it at the time um, when <laughs> McCain died. Uh, there, The other really damning thing that I uh, was able to confirm with my sources, who again uh, told me that in a planning meeting for after the Bastille, after President Trump saw the Bastille Day parade in France, and he wanted a big military parade in Washington to mark the 4th of July. In one of those planning meetings, he had seen at the Bastille Day how there were wounded veterans um, who were included in the, um, in the parade. And he said uh, offhandedly uh, the, about the wounded guys, this was a quote, wounded guys, uh, Americans don't want to see that, and suggesting that they should not be included in the parade. Now that stands in stark contrast to public things he said and done for wounded veterans. I um, have seen the president engage with wounded veterans and he does do so. So uh, there are many examples to counter that, but privately he did not want wounded veterans in that July 4th uh, parade. And to the best of my knowledge, they were not. Um, so these sources are good sources. And um, I know there's been a lot of, uh, there have been a number of people have come on the record to say that they did not hear the president say uh, that and that there were security reasons why he couldn't go out to the Ein Marn Cemetery, but that uh, is not true as far as I uh, know. And I, I believe there's, you know, again, I can't go any further because I'm not going to reveal my sources, but sometimes we use anonymous sources. I'll give you an example. Last night, I used anonymous sources to report uh, what I had heard was that they were going to make, the, pre the Pentagon and the President and the White House were going to make an announcement about a drawdown from Iraq today, from 5,200 troops to 3,000 troops. I had very good anonymous source who was not prepared to get ahead of the White House. I confirmed those details. I put out the report uh, last night with anonymous sources. Fox did a news alert. And by morning, guess what? General Frank McKenzie was in Baghdad making the announcement and put out uh, almost verbatim what I had reported the night before. And so sometimes you have to use anonymous sources. It's not our preference. Of course, I would prefer to have people on the record, but there are a variety of reasons right now, particularly under this administration that anonymous sources are needed. Um, I've said this before, but Deep Throat was an anonymous source. It didn't make him less real. It didn't make what he said less true. Um, that's just the way it goes. And um, I'm quite certain that the president knows uh, who these anonymous sources are because um, uh, they are real. Yeah, and I think there's been an, it's been interesting to watch the criticism from the president's defenders on uh, these reports relying on anonymous sources. That hasn't stopped, you know, uh, president's defenders from using anonymous sources themselves. And I think it's, it's important that readers know that a, much of the reporting, much of the most important reporting that's happened in politics has come thanks to anonymous sources that would otherwise not be able to speak on the record about stories. It's um, my understanding, uh, Aiden, that 
one of the biggest anonymous sources for the White House press corps is President Trump himself. And his, the people around him are often the anonymous sources that you hear them talk about at the White House. So it's completely hypocritical. Uh, people are picking and choosing when they want to hear from anonymous sources. Again, as a journalist, it's not my first choice. I much prefer to have people on the record. And for the most part, I do get people on the record. But this was a sensitive story. And I have to respect the wishes of those sources as to why they don't want to go on the record at this time. John Bolton wrote in his book, uh, just speaking about the Ayn Marne uh, aspect of this story, he had uh, a description of what happened at the time where he, he spoke, he basically said that, that bad weather was the reason why that trip to Ayn Marne was not taken. Uh, he said when he got asked about it last week that, you know, he may not have been in the room when Trump made those comments, uh, but that he was confident that the reason that the, the trip got called off was for bad weather. Do you see that as conflicting with what you've been hearing from your sources or the Atlantic story, or is there a way to reconcile those two? I think there is a way to reconcile those two. Bad weather was the reason the president couldn't take a helicopter, okay? That is different mm -hmm. from not being able to go to the cemetery. There was no reason, but there was a, uh, the president was warned at the time that the press would, quote, kill him for not going to the cemetery that day. And there were those who were trying to convince him to go. And he, uh, he stuck to his guns and said he did not want to go. And he instead stayed at the uh, French uh, at the American embassy in Paris and later had lunch with uh, President Macron and his wife. And but the, the description at the time was that the press people had to work quickly to come up with a cover for why the president wasn't going. And that's when I believe uh, issues of security started being mentioned. Uh, but that was not the case based on my reporting. Now, President Trump called for your firing on Friday night in a tweet uh, for <laughs> well, the reporting. <laughs> well, I was back on the air the next day and I'm not fired. So um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm happy I, to I'm hear afraid, that. I'm afraid that, that um, the good yeah. news is I don't work for President Trump and he doesn't um, he, he doesn't get to decide whether I'm fired. And, and it's pretty ill-advised. It's pretty ill-advised. He does tend to, um, uh, he's, targeted the press. He's called called the press fake news from the get-go. It's his go-to mechanism. It doesn't bother me in the slightest. I, I have a reputation in, this, in, this, uh, in Washington and from my years of reporting from the Middle East, and um, nobody would accuse me of pulling my punches. I, I, in fact, there's a funny story, Aiden. When I moved back to Washington, uh, 13 years ago, we bought a house in DC. And one day, um, somebody pulled up in front of the house and told us a story because I guess they used to have some legion, legendary parties at our house back in the 70s. And in the Watergate period, I guess there was a, a cocktail party out back. And Ron Ziegler, the press secretary for Nixon at the time, was at the party and he got thrown in the pool. <laughs> and so it reminded, I thought of that story the other day because this town has always been a full contact sport. And this, you know, administrations come and administrations go, but the freedom of the press remains. Uh, we're protected under the constitution and journalists have been doing what I did this weekend and for the last, um, you know, three decades, they've been doing it for a long time. It sounds like you very easily brushed off the, the Trump tweet. I was going to ask how it made you feel getting attacked by the commander in chief, but uh, I, I feel like you've answered it by, you know, just saying that you kind of laughed it off. 
I don't take it personally. It wasn't, per my reporting wasn't personal. And this is just, you know, it's a, it's a tough arena. I grew up, I grew up as I, I think I mentioned to you, I grew up not far from the Pentagon in Alexandria. And I went to school, I went to a, a girls high school, an Episcopal high school uh, called St. Agnes at the time. And we were taught an honor code. It was ingrained in us. Uh, Sydney McCain, who was uh, John McCain's daughter, uh, I played sports with her. There were a lot of military people who sent their kids to St. Agnes. And again, you know, I haven't waved for, wavered from that honor code for years. And I, I really try to tune out the noise. When I was in the Middle East, you know, we were in really dangerous situations. This to me uh, is just noise. Now, you, you received a lot of support from your colleagues at Fox News after Trump sent out that tweet. Uh, but I will say your reporting angered some of the opinion shows. Lou Dobbs called reports on the comments horrible lies. And Greg Gutfeld of The Five alleged some sort of coordination between the Biden campaign and the press on the story to smear Trump. Do you, do you have a problem sometimes with people at your own network disputing your reporting? Well, I don't know if they were disputing my reporting. I didn't take that personally either. There's really, I've always worked for the news, news division at Fox. Um, I've always been a straight news reporter. Everybody knows that about me at Fox. And I have, again, I've worked for Fox since six months after they went on the air. So that's, I think, 26 years now. And all, all, I've always been treated with respect. My reporting has been respected. I feel respected. Um, my job is not in jeopardy. And, you know, I came back to work the next, on Monday, I worked on Labor Day and I, started reporting. I broke the story last night about the troop pullout from Iraq in terms of the numbers. And I had that. It was accurate. I scooped everyone. I'm still working. I'll still be working tomorrow. And all the, all the, any of those people that you just quoted, I am quite certain they will be quoting my reporting uh, in the future. That's a good way to look at it. Now, a, a slew of, of White House staffers uh, have come out to say that there's no possible way that Trump spoke about American service members uh, in the way that's been described in all of these reports. Uh, on the other hand, people like John Kelly have not come out to defend the president on this. Do you think it says something that so few of the sort of high profile officials that have left the White House are not coming out to defend the president and say that he would never speak about service members like this? I mean, I'm just thinking about his, the president's public comments going back to uh, when he said, when he called John McCain a loser and said that he wasn't uh, a hero because he got caught in Vietnam. I, is there a sense that that the people that have left the White House are not going to come out and defend Trump on this, whereas the people that are in the White House still are saying that there's no way he could speak about people? There seems to be a bit of a, a leap there between those two views. I think all you have to do is look at the public comments by the president going back for years. I mean, you can go from 2015 onwards, what he has said publicly. I mean, his favorite word in his vernacular is loser. Um, he described uh, John McCain in similar terms. He has said, he has said many of these things publicly. So I, I don't know why we're splitting hairs on this. Uh, also, the day after, when, when he came out on Tuesday and had the press briefing at the White House, um, he managed to insult 
the top leaders of the Pentagon, the generals, saying that the enlisted like him, but the generals just fight wars, um, want to start wars to support the military industrial complex. He said the act, actual quote was something about make the defense contractors happy with all their, you know, armaments. Uh, so I, I really, you know, I can tell you from firsthand reporting that the top leaders of the Pentagon and the officer corps were pretty shocked to hear the way he was trying to drive a wedge between the enlisted troops and their leaders, who are the officers, who are um, the you know the heads of of the military branches, and who are the leaders of those enlisted. I mean that that has never happened. I, I can guarantee you, no commander in chief has ever tried knowingly tried to drive a wedge with uh, the way he described. Uh, general officers and the leaders of the Pentagon, basically as war profiteers, and the division he was trying to, the wedge he was trying to uh, create between the enlisted and saying that the generals don't like him. Um, I mean, all you have to do is go back to the 2017 tank uh, meeting, which has now been well reported on, where he called the generals dopes and babies. And during the campaign, he said he knew more than the generals. Uh, but creating a wedge between the enlisted and the general officer corps, um, that creates problems. If you had to go to war tomorrow, that, that is an issue of good order and discipline and really raises eyebrows here in the Pentagon. To the president's credit, he really has uh, essentially, he increased the defense budget and essentially gave the Pentagon a blank check to try and deal with a number of readiness issues. Um, he has given uh, troops um, uh, pay raises over the last four, three years, and, and he has given a lot of credit for that. He also gave very, a very big budget to increase the budget at the VA, and he's been very concerned about the VA wait times. And so he does get credit for, um, and he genuinely would like to end the wars overseas. It's just a question of how to end those wars. Um, so I think there are plenty of examples that the president has uh, fully funded the military and um, and bought a lot of loyalty, if you will, uh, among the troops with by backing pay raises each uh, in each of his budgets. You know, what's so funny about that is that you you hear these these comments that are made um, even publicly by the president, uh, like the comments that we had this week uh, about the the way the American military operates, and they sort of seem in con contradiction with a lot of the actions that he's taken. Well, I think the way to see it, and this is what my source told me when I spoke to uh, about the Atlantic article, is that President Trump sees everything as transactional. And he truly does not understand why a soldier would, why someone would give their life for their country. He doesn't understand why soldiers do, he's in awe of why they do what they do, given the fact that they aren't uh, paid Wall Street salaries. And he constantly would say as much. He said as much standing at the, at the grave of Robert Kelly, uh, John Kelly's son in Arlington National Cemetery. Multiple people witnessed it. He is constantly musing as to why, if you could make money, would you serve in the military? But as you said, he also likes the pomp and the ceremony that goes along with being the commander in chief. And he knows that it's a very uh, important part of his base. And so he has fully funded the military uh, for the last four years. And, and those budgets have been big. And he expects a certain degree of loyalty as a result.
I am wondering from a, a national security perspective, you know, given this is your beat, what you think is the biggest story to look for in the coming months? Well, I think, um, unfortunately, and I never expected our beat to get dragged into uh, the election, but I think there is some degree of concern in the military that the military would uh, be ordered to either put down protests. You saw back in June timeframe after the uh, Black Lives Matter protests that, that there was a battle royale in the, in the White House over whether to use the 82nd Airborne or whether to federalize the National Guard and to put down those protests. Um, there, I think there's increasing concern at the highest levels that somehow the military will get dragged in to what should be, uh, which is a role that they, you've heard General Mark Milley say that uh, this, that elections should be decided by A, the voters, and if there's a problem, then it goes to the, to the legislators and the courts, and this is not, the military should have no role in this election. And so I think what worries people is when it's flung around on both sides that somehow the military what might get involved. I think we're just sort of, I think there's a feeling here at the Pentagon that they would like to stay below the radar. They don't want to get dragged into uh, any of the domestic politics that we're seeing right now. They fought very hard to not have to get involved uh, with the domestic protests. I imagine that, you know, bundled into that are also the fears of election interference again this time around. Um, are, are there similar fears as, as to what happened in 2016 being, you know, a problem this time around again? Well, I think there are real concerns, and I've, I talked to a lot of people up and down the military, uh, throughout the military. After 2016, uh, the military, as well as the NSA and others, and U.S. Cyber Command, uh, they did set up, they are looking for the ways in which foreign adversaries are trying to insert disinformation into our uh, body politic. And they are concerned, they're not concerned about any votes being changed by a foreign power, but they are very concerned that the kind of information operations uh, that we're seeing uh, through social media and elsewhere, uh, they are watching as Russia, China, and Iran and others are trying to um, influence and divide Americans. So I think that's what really has the military concerned is just how polarized and divided Americans are. And they know that our adversaries, uh, North Korea and others, but particularly Russia, are fanning those flames through uh, social media. And it's uh, very, very difficult yeah. to stop them. And even though mm. We're, I think the playbook is now known and there are national security um, players in the U United States government uh, that are working to block those information operations. Very, very difficult to, with the way, with a free press and an open, uh, and an open um, you know, the protected speech online and the tech companies not cooperating. I mean, I think this time around, they've reached out to the tech companies to see if Facebook, Twitter, and others will do more to try and um, halt these operations. But again, it, it, it's, it's, uh, that's the biggest worry right now, I think, for, for many people in, in, at the senior levels of our national security. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. 
Please subscribe to the interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and look out for coverage of my conversation with Jennifer Griffin on Mediate.com. We hope to see you next week.